Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Father, we sometimes fail to grasp the breadth and the depth of all that Jesus Christ was and is and will be involved with. The cross is the convergence point where everything comes together. It's where we find redemption. It's where we find that sense of substitution where he stepped in and died in our place for our sins. We praise you and we thank you for that. At the same time, we look to the left, we look to the right, and we see that there's evil in this world. There is a cosmic chaos that seems to intensify daily. In the very personal sphere of our lives, we long for everything broken to be put back together again and made whole, which will take place when our Lord returns. But we live between the now and the not yet. In the meantime, Father, what we have unfolding in front of our eyes in these verses is this cosmic court scene that needs to be understood in such a way that's honoring to you and brings added perspective to our lives and a sense of assurance that all is under control. So, Father, in these minutes that you give us now to be together as we explore your word, warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. We've come here again, Father, to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. What would Jesus Christ think of this billboard that was put out on the streets of North Carolina by a law office? Here's how it reads. Just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. What would Jesus think? Just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. As the cosmic courtroom scene unfolds, there is entrenched within humanity this sense of guilt, and the question is, and how is it to be resolved? And what we want to do with that billboard in the back of our mindset, but the scriptures in the front of our eyes, is to now draw out three significant implications with regard to the lordship of Jesus Christ that has direct bearing upon this court scene that we are examining this morning in God's word, using just two verses. Now, the first is found in the beginning of verse 1, and we're going to phrase it like this. Number one, our Lord is our advocate with the Father. Our Lord is our advocate with the Father. And you're going to notice how we have italicized these words because our headings are going to come directly from these two verses. Notice how John begins because he's an aged apostle at this point, and frankly, he has seen it all. He begins with these words, my little children. Words which he'll use six times throughout this epistle. Words which he's using as he wants to minister to broken hearts as he ministers to heavy hearts, as he ministers to those that have struggled with the essence and the reality and the painful brokenness of sin. 
throughout the first chapter of 1 John, what we will find the apostle doing again and again and again is addressing this matter of sin. And now it might seem as though that his readership is saying to themselves, well, I just feel so defeated by what I'm reading. What can be done? I want you to notice the mood here. Spot the tenderness here. He cares, and he cares about you. There isn't a sense of harshness as he begins chapter 2 in this first verse. There's a pastoral care that emanates through these words. My little children, says this aged apostle. Note the tone. Note the fatherliness of it all. And what he does at this point is that he gets a sense that his audience is needing something in terms of balance. And that's what he's about to provide. What I'm going to note next with you, and it appears on the screen as he gives his purpose statement, is that there's a tension here. A tension between the negative and the positive. A tension here. A tension that stands out in a way that needs to be well balanced. First, the negative. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Notice the negative. The objective here, then, is to create a sense of restraint and a desire within our hearts that we're just not going to do it. Sin. Now, again and again and again, throughout the writings of 1 John, he will utilize the Greek word hamartia to describe his view of sin. And as we noted last week and in prior weeks, hamartia means literally to miss the mark. That's the meaning behind that word, sin. It was used to describe a soldier out on the battlefield where, with bow set, arrow in hand, he aims, he fires, but he misses the mark. He comes up short, which is consistent with what Paul wrote regarding Hamartia, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are a bunch of kids that were gathered together with their fathers. And it was archery practice time. And there were these targets that were set up. And all these students had their bow and their arrows and hand. And there was this particular father that was standing nearby his son as he watched his son again and again and again attempt to hit the target but keep, kept coming up short. He's a young boy. And so the father approached him and he said, Son, if you're going to hit the bullseye, you're going to have to get closer to the target. And I wrote that into 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. God has established a target of righteousness for you and for me. Amen. Standing too far back from God and God's presence, distancing ourselves from God again and again and again, we're going to fall short of the mark. 
And the objective that the Apostle John wants to set before all the spiritual archers is that if we are going to hit the bullseye, we're going to have to stay close to the target. And of course, Jesus Christ is known as the righteous one, our target. So we're looking at this at this point, and he's burdened because he wants people not to lose the joy of their salvation. He had said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. But there is something very sorrowful about a believer who, because of the brokenness of sin, is secure in salvation, but has lost that sense of true joy and longs for it to be restored. Now, if that's you this morning, get close to the target. Now, John looks at the people at this point, and you feel this parental care, don't you? My little children. He's got that sense of target practice on his hands here. I'm writing these things to you. And now notice he begins with a negative, which is consistent with the way so often Scripture approaches things. So often you will find the negative precedes the positive. But the danger is that if we just simply exclude the positive and focus on the negative, we emphasize severity. But if we emphasize the positive and exclude the negative, then we emphasize leniency. We've got to find this balance, you see. And so now, what he does is this. In essence, what he's saying is that when you fall, you don't fall out of grace. When you fall, you fall into grace. Because now, what he does is that he connects justice and grace the negative now with the positive. But if anyone does sin, he's being real with you. He knows what we're like. He knows our human nature and our human tendencies and how sinful acts come from the sinful nature. So now he introduces the but if. He did not use the conditional if in the first half in the negative. But now he uses the if in the second half in the positive. But If anyone does homotia, if anyone does miss the mark, if anyone does sin, here you have it. Our Lord is our advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. Here's the balance. Here's the reality statement. He knows the penalty of sin has been paid for at the cross. The power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin still remains. And we deal with this tension of the penalty, power, presence dynamic, don't we? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, this word advocate's interesting, isn't it? Because this advocate refers to Jesus Christ, and the word advocate comes from the Greek word paraclete. Here's with the idea of a defense attorney, but that's not enough, you see. Because in John chapter 14, remember now, this apostle John, who wrote first and second, third John, also wrote the Gospel of John on one hand, and Revelation on the other hand, penned these thoughts in John chapter 14, beginning with verse, in verse 16. Jesus said this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, 
in the English Standard Version, helper, to be with you forever. The phrase another paraclete, another helper, Greek word for another alas, it means one of the same kind. So what he is saying is that he is ascribing divinity to the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. I will provide another of the same kind as myself, advocate, helper, paraclete. That's your defense attorney. Now, what you find then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 is this. Jesus Christ is your advocate in heaven. While in John chapter 14, verse 16, the Holy Spirit is your advocate on earth. What I'm now teaching you is that from God's word, you have dual advocacy in both the second and the third members of the Trinity, in both the realm of the earthly and the realm of the heavenly. You've got the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, whispering, so to speak, into your ear. Do this and don't do that. Go here, but don't go there. Say this, but don't say that. Because he knows you're human, and he knows my human nature of sinfulness. And so he's creating this balance between what I am inclined to do and what I ought to do. Do you see now the tension, the healthy, balanced tension that the Apostle John is developing for you and for me at this point. So now we have an advocate on earth, the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 16, and again in 26. Simultaneously, we've got an advocate in the heavens, Jesus Christ. But here's all the more what's interesting. You see, prior to the well-structured Roman judicial system, Typically, when people needed to be defended, what you would turn to was the one who was the leader of the clan. Often it was the firstborn in the family or the extended family, typically someone who was older, who would gather all together the necessary information to rightly, wisely, effectively defend the clan. Jesus, with humanity as well as divinity, Jesus, who took on flesh, is part of our clan. So now what you have is your legal representation. You've got your advocate. You've got your paraclete. And astoundingly, he's your clan member. He's got humanity as well as divinity, two natures in one person. He is your advocate. Several years ago, I spotted this coming out of Cincinnati's newspapers, where a Cincinnati attorney was appointed by the court to defend a man accused of burglary. After going to the jail to interview the suspect, the lawyer decided he did not want to represent the man and requested permission to withdraw from the case. And the reason was that his own office had recently been burglarized, and the person he was named to defend was being indicted for that crime. Conflict of interest. 
The court agreed that the cause of justice would not be best served if the victim had to defend the one accused of offending him. But compare that to heaven, where our victim is willing to defend. Where Jesus Christ, offended by the sinfulness of humanity, at the same time is willing to be our defense attorney and furthermore went to the cross, died in our place for our sins, and now in our defense, he defends us not on the basis of our goodness because it's not there, on the basis of his goodness. Now, here's the rub. The judge knows you're guilty. Your defense attorney knows you're guilty. It's Jesus. And yet you're being defended. You're being defended in this cosmic courtroom by the one who's your substitute and died in the place for our sins. Have you considered this dual advocacy? Does that allow you to be able to get a sense of the presence of God in your life and how much he loves you? But if anyone does sin, we have this dual advocacy. We have got the Holy Spirit. We have got Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity. And what we find here in this court drama that is unfolding in front of our very eyes is that we have an advocate with the Father. It does not read, we have an advocate with the judge. Does it? It's not there in your scripture. Nope. It says that we have an advocate with the Father. Which means then, you've got clan advocacy on your hands here. And the advocacy, is being, an appeal is being made to the one who has already judged your sin on the cross. And now what Jesus Christ is doing is saying, you have a personal relationship with this judge. You can call him Father. And furthermore, what I want you to understand is that how the Father and how the Son view you are consistent with one another. Because John, again, now utilizing his gospel account, records Jesus' words, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will be able is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Get this, I and the Father are one. Your defense attorney and your judge are in agreement. Now, the judge knows you're guilty. The defense attorney knows you're guilty. And thirdly, we know we're guilty. Everybody knows we're guilty in that cosmic court, and yet we're being defended nonetheless. On what grounds? Not on our works, but on Christ's work. You remember those seven words on the cross of Jesus Christ? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. First word. 
last word. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. But if you create this sense of a roof, the fourth word didn't begin with the word Father, did it? My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Christ took the verdict. That was a judicial phrase. My God. So that we could have the parental experience. My Father. And you put that together now. And the Apostle John understands why he should write my little children. You can almost spot the tear in his eye with regard to the sins of the people to whom and for whom he writes. It ought to be there for us as well when we think about our loved ones, our friends, our lives. I'm writing these things to you, balance, negative, you may not sin, positive, but if anyone does sin, so now we've got the negative and positive balance. But furthermore, through the gospel account combined with First John account, we've got the dual advocacy balance. Earthly advocacy, heavenly advocacy. And it reads, not advocate with the Father, excuse me, with the judge, but rather with the Father. I came across this. Paul Van Gordon puts it this way. When Abraham Lincoln was president, his son Robert had a close friend who entered the army as a private. Robert sent word to his friend saying, write to me and I'll intercede with father and get you something better. And a few years went by before Robert heard from the soldier again. And when they got together, Lincoln's friend said, I never took advantage of your offer. But you don't know what a comfort it was to me. Often, after an intense, weary march, I would throw myself on the ground and say, if it becomes beyond human endurance, I can write to Bob Lincoln and get relief. And I would rather have his intercession than that of the president's cabinet because I, can know, I know I can go to the Father through the Son. Now, you and I can go to the Father through the Son. We have an advocate with the Father. And that brings such incredible assurance in this cosmic chaos, this world, that there's a cosmic courtroom where life's issues are getting resolved on the basis of Christ's work, not ours. So that's your first distinctive here about your Lord. The number one, our Lord is our advocate with the Father. Here's your second distinctive. The number two, our Lord is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And you're still in verse one. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now notice the wording of what comes next. Jesus Christ. The righteous. The name Jesus means literally Yahweh saves. And the name was given to the second member of the Trinity by the first member of the Trinity. 
Joseph was Jesus' legal father. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. And so now the heavenly father speaks to the legal father. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And what's the meaning of all this? For he will save his people from their sins. Now, the Apostle John, who's writing First John, had a fishing buddy. It's Peter. And one of the great, great statements made by Peter in the book of Acts is found out on the streets of Jerusalem in chapter 4, verse 12. Once again, a dualness stands out. And there is no salvation. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be what? There it is again. Saved. This name is important. This name Jesus. The Apostle Paul likewise understood that well. We're in Philippians chapter 2 verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him what? The name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus. But when you're dealing with your advocate, you're not only dealing with the name Jesus, you're dealing with the office. Jesus Christ. The Greek word Christos is the same for the Old Testament Hebrew word matzah, where we get Messiah. And while Jesus was having one of those very intense conversations with his disciples, in Matthew chapter 16, when he began to ask people, the disciples, and what are people saying about me? Who do they say the Son of Man is? Very opinions out there, but then he gets personal. He has a way of doing that with you and me, doesn't he? But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, John's buddy, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Which creates an incredible tension once again when Jesus is standing before Pilate. Because Pilate now has got Jesus standing before him, and Jesus does not have a defense attorney. He stands alone. And when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas? Listen now. Or Jesus, who is called Christ. The one who lacked a defense attorney is out there in the public being viewed as the one who is called Christ. While the Apostle John refers to your defense attorney as not merely one who is called, but rather one who is Jesus Christ. As Pilate listens now to the give and the take of it all, 
He's got a decision to make. Do I release Barabbas or do I release Jesus, who's called Christ? What is interesting is that the name Barabbas means really son of the father. His father was probably a rabbi. In other words, what Pilate is posing is the question, do I release son of the earthly father? Or do I release son of the heavenly father? Will Barabbas be the substitute for Jesus, or will Jesus be the substitute for Barabbas? Danger here. Danger. Too many people are trying to substitute for Jesus when Jesus was designated to be the substitute for you and for me. But there's a third descriptive. You see it's still on the screen. It's not only Jesus. It's not only Jesus Christ. But thirdly, it's Jesus Christ. The righteous. So you're a defense attorney now. As the righteous one is willing to defend the unrighteous ones. Astonished. But keep connecting the dots. Jesus Christ the righteous. And you're still in that courtroom scene, that earthly scene. I'm contrasting now. You're picking up on it. Two court scenes, one below, one above. Back to Jesus and Pilate. And Pilate's wife whispers something into into Pilate's ear. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Interesting. Meanwhile, John's fishing buddy for Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, would add, For Christ also suffered once for sins, listen, the righteous for the unrighteous. So the tension, the cosmic tension in this world, will it be the unrighteous for the righteous or the righteous for the unrighteous? What we need is a righteous defense attorney. I came across this in some legal correspondence. A defense attorney was cross-examining a police officer during a felony trial. And it went like this. Defense attorney. Officer, did you see my client fleeing the scene? Did you see my client fleeing the scene? The officer responds to the defense attorney. No, sir. But I subsequently observed a person matching the description of the offender running several blocks away. Defense attorney. Officer, who provided this description? Answer, the officer who responded to the scene. Defense attorney, a fellow officer provided the description of the so-called offender. Do you trust your fellow officers? Yes, sir, the officer answered, with my life. With your life? Let me ask you this then. 
Officer, do you have a locker room in the police station, a room where you change your clothes in preparation for your daily duties? Yes, sir, we do. And do you have a locker in that room? Yes, sir, I do. And do you have a lock on your locker? Yes, sir, I do. So the defense attorney then asked, Now why is it, officer, if you trust your fellow officers with your life, that you find it necessary to lock your locker in a room you share with those officers? To which the officer responded, Well, you see, sir, we share the building with a court complex. And sometimes defense attorneys have been known to walk through the room. Do you want an unrighteous defense attorney? Or do you want a righteous defense attorney? If he's unrighteous, then what he did on the cross is insufficient, inadequate. And the wrath falls upon the sinner. But if what that defense attorney did is righteous, and if that defense attorney is righteous, substitution occurs. It's the righteous for the unrighteous. And the defense attorney is basing his argument not based upon our works, but upon his work. Even though the father in that courtroom knows we're guilty, even though your defense attorney knows you're guilty, and though you and I know we're guilty, yet nonetheless, if we put faith and trust in the one who died in our place for our sins, we are declared righteous. Not inherently righteous, but legally declared righteous. You got that out of verse 1. I got to get some giddy up and go here. We just got verse 2. Because here is your third descriptive of your Lord. That thirdly, our Lord is the propitiation for our sins. I want you to notice the wording here. It does not read, he was the propitiation for our sins. Does it? No. It says, he is the propitiation for our sins. Which means then that he is continuously in that cosmic courtroom, day in, day out, applying the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross to you and to me whenever we do sin. He's saying, but do you remember? Do you see what I did on that cross for John Smith? Do you see what I did on the cross for Gary Highlander? We are looked at through the lens of Christ's righteousness in that cosmic courtroom. But you say, Gary, propitiation I didn't walk out of the house day in, day out this week talking about propitiation. You're going to have to help me with that one. I get that. Let's give it a shot, okay? It's a word that meant so, so much to the readership. This is Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, which satisfies the demands of God's justice. while appeasing God's holy wrath against sin. Can I say that again? 
This is Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, which satisfies the demands of God's justice, appeasing God's holy wrath against sin. And you say, God, God's wrath? I thought God is a God of love. John knew you were going there. Because he uses the same word again in 1 John 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We didn't appeal to him, take the initiative and say, send me a propitiator. That's how much love there is for you and for me. That God satisfies his holy justice. God appeases his holy wrath by sending the second member of the Trinity to die in the place for your sins and my sins to be our advocate in the heavens in this cosmic courtroom being described here in these words. And then he adds this, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Which would mean then that if everybody is saved, this is meaningless. But they're not saved. Not everyone. There is a hell as well as a heaven. So how is propitiation to be applied here? Well, John anticipated your questions because in John chapter, Revelation chapter 5, we find in these words of verses 9 and 10, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. It does not read, you ransomed people for God, every tribe, language, people, nation. What it reads is, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. In other words, this is not all people without exception. This is all people without distinction, Jew and Gentile, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile, as Paul put it. And so now you've got the application of Christ's work on the cross in the cosmic courtroom continual on an ongoing basis meeting our point of need which just takes us back to that billboard then just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty the father knows it the son knows it Holy Spirit knows it we know it but you've put faith and trust in your defense attorney who died in your place for your sins, even though you're guilty. He defends you. You are declared righteous, not inherently righteous. You are declared righteous because he is righteous. Let's stand together. Thank you, Father.
the righteous for the unrighteous. So we place our faith not in our supposed righteousness, which is unrighteousness, but in Jesus Christ, the righteous, truly righteous. Even Pilate's wife knew it. So if there's one here in any of these services this morning that came in spiritually curious, intellectually hungry, longing for answers to life's cosmic questions, draw them to your word, where the one who is the truth speaks truth into our hearts, convicts us of sin, draws us in grace to you as we embrace Jesus putting our faith exclusively in him as Savior and Lord. Speak to that heart. Lead him or her to you now, we pray in Jesus' name.